Welcome to the Knowledge Institute, where we talk with experts on business trends, deconstruct them into the main components, and share their insights. Today, I'm very happy to be joined by John Quill Heikenberg, partner with Infosys Consulting, the management consulting arm of Infosys. Welcome, John Quill. Thanks, Jeff. Good to be here. Very, very happy to have you. Uh, look forward to a great discussion today. And we're going to be talking about this whole idea of organization of the future and the things that support it. But for, before we get going with that, we'd like to know a little bit about yourself and um, your, your your story. So what, what's your background? Sure. So um, I've been with uh, Emphasis Consulting for close to 11 years. I head up the C-suite advisory practice for Europe here, and I focus predominantly on digital supply chain and operations, and that expands into uh, employee experience, digital workplace, and of course, the whole area around talent and, and how that's changing. And um, I came to Emphasis actually from a startup. So I used to work in a startup in the past. I worked for dot-coms. I worked globally, both pre-Emphasis and now with Emphasis. And I guess what has formed my passion for this specific area is a couple of things. One is a passion for lifelong learning and how that can be brought to the workplace. I think that's increasingly important. And the second area is really around sustainability and what does that mean? So sustainability, sure, from an environmental perspective and how that impacts supply chains and how that impacts the workplace, but also sustainability in terms of talent and how you can regenerate your organization such that you're constantly turned on and ready for the future. Well, it's fantastic. Uh, It's funny because to hear you describe it, it's almost like it's something that appeals to literally the the planet overall, to companies, and then almost on an individual level as well. Exactly. Exactly right. Very well put. Great. And one thing I also wanted to highlight, uh, I believe you're, you're based in Europe. Uh, where were you based? So I'm based in Berlin. I'm I'm hired out of London, but I live in in Berlin actually, which is a, a great a great place to live um, and a thriving capital of startups in Europe. Yes, and I wanted to highlight that because uh, I think Berlin, especially East Berlin, uh, was there last year, is such a, a hotbed of innovation and diverse thinking. So it brings a lot of perspectives together. So I think that background is awesome as well. Obviously, some of these trends you mentioned, sustainability and the organization are important today. How have they uh, gotten to this point? You know, what, what are some of the, I guess, the drivers or some of the things you've seen a few years ago that kind of led to this point? And, and why is this a big deal today? So I think a few things have fallen into place. Um, I guess we have the 17 sustainable development goals that have been established by the UN and perpetrated by the, the WEF. Um, that's that's a large driver for lots of organizations to really rethink how they're going to market. So that's the first thing. I think also consumer perception of what you're buying is increasingly become very, very important. So you know, 10 years ago, it was all about mass production. And now it's really about mass personalization. And as we go more to that personalization, people are really concerned about provenance of products, um, and also how well uh, people are being treated throughout the value chain. So the product they, they are buying, they know exactly where it's come from. That's increasingly important, almost more so than uh, the, the, the cost of the product. For sure, you've, you've kind of got two schools of thought. One is, 
how can I buy things cheaply? And then I guess the other half of the world is, well, how can I buy it ethically? And I think that proportion of the world is increasingly becoming important. If you look at that as a consumer driver, then, you know, flipping that on its head or on its side, it's really looking then at the employees and employees are really your internal customers. And they want to be working for firms who are really walking the talk. So increasingly, it's important to represent exactly that perspective that you're giving to consumers internally, because your internal employees are a reflection of the customers you're trying to sell to. It's fascinating because the employees are now a couple of personas, or maybe they're wearing two hats. They're both the people that are helping you produce whatever product you have or service as well as a good indicator of the consumers you're trying to serve in the in the first place. Absolutely, absolutely. And and that's why I think really this this whole consumer focus um which is increasingly prevalent for example in consumer goods companies but really in in any manufacturing organization as well the consumer is now forefront it's not the immediate customer that that's the priority but really the the entire customer journey. And with that, you, you have to take into consideration how can your own talent reflect that and how can they then pr produce for the end consumer in mind? So even for companies that sell to other companies, B2B, as the slang goes, you, they're still needing to worry about the end consumer who actually will, will be that last person to, to purchase it and use it. Absolutely. And, and um, from, from that perspective, that, that just helps them to be more relevant for the product and more relevant for the customer, which then allows their own B2B customer to sell to their consumer. And I, th I think that's, that's only going to increase as, as time goes by. That's a good overview. I'd like to, to maybe dig into a little bit. Uh, now, you mentioned the UN and the SDG goals and this provide this broad framework. Is it difficult, though, as you're talking with, with clients and, and executives of clients to somehow not rationalize, but justify somehow that they're trying to serve this, this bigger purpose? And yet at the same time, they get beaten up if they don't make their quarterly numbers, their, their monthly operations reports. How do they reconcile that difference? That's a brilliant question. Um, I think the answer lies somewhere in how do you make sustainability profitable? So how do you offer new lines of business? How does sustainability enable you to offer new lines of business in your go-to-market strategies? So, for example, let's say you sell tea bags, but if you're able to prove the provenance of the tea leaf and that it's potentially fair trade tea, then suddenly you're opening up a new line of revenue stream that can command a higher price. And, and that's really, I believe, the only way that's really going to get traction in, in organizations is, is to how, how do you make sustainability uh, profitable? I hear the business news and maybe more of the pop and the social media uh, chatter. Too often that's left out. There's either a feel-good message or a maybe on your soapbox kind of message. At the same time, you've got to reconcile both of those. Question for you, as you think about this uh, more compelling value proposition that makes everything wonderful, you're able to make sustainability profitable. What percentage of the population feels that way, that the ethical and the sustainable aspects <clears throat> outweigh the, the, uh, the cost aspects? And, and maybe what percentage of the market? You see the difference? You know, the population may care, but maybe it's addressable market because that is something uh, I would think would also vary by, by company and by industry. 
I think it varies by company and by industry and also by geography. So for the emerging markets, there's less a concern from a consumer perspective as to what they're buying rather than the price of what they're buying. And I think I think that will continue for a while. But ironically or conversely, it's often the emerging markets that, that care most about where their supply chains are most going to be affected by those uh, in industrialized markets who where the consumers are willing to pay more because they want to know where the product comes from and that people have been treated fairly. And often it's the people who need to be treated fairly in that supply chain who are in the emerging markets. So as that awareness becomes uh, greater, um, I think we're still talking about, I, I don't have a percentage figure, but we're talking about small numbers still, but uh, increasingly because of consumer perception and because of the likes of Greta Grunerberg, um, you know, really driving that younger generation to talk about making a stand about the planet. I think there's going to be some rapid changes soon that will will demand answers from organizations. That's what makes this discussion so interesting, isn't it? Because if we say that we're living in exponential times and the goal is to figure out when that knee of the curve or that inflection point hits before other people do, because if you do afterwards and perhaps it's too late, then that's kind of what you're doing, isn't it? You're you're kind of looking forward and and, and seeing this. Yeah, it, it's fascinating. Do you see what role do you see analytics and data? I, I would think all these this, these points you're making, they're based upon facts. They're based upon trends. They're based upon something. We think it's pretty important to figure out what data you can trust and what data you can actually look at to, to establish these trends. Can you comment about maybe sources of data for the general population? And, and maybe are there some specific areas to look to get some more insight? Yeah, so, so using, if you look at Industry 4.0 and the technologies that it affords and brings brings to bear, it really gives the opportunity for both the company to prove their their traceability, their, their provenance of products, their transparency across the supply chain. And, and with that, that, that brings simple benefits of just making it a much slicker, more transparent supply chain, which allows the supply chain to move faster. But then with technologies such as blockchain coupled with QR code technology, it allows end consumers to also have an insight or some view into that supply chain to, to prove that they, they can trust the knowledge that they've been told from the, uh, the companies they're buying from. And I think that's what's very fascinating about the current world of technology that's emerging across uh, digitalization of supply chain. So in the past, the biggest decisions an organization had to make was really, do I use SAP or do I use Oracle, for example? And now there's myriad technologies out there. The question is, where do you even start? How do you get your biggest bang for your buck? How do you make a biggest difference? and provide that transparency without losing your USP and your own internal secrets. So I think it's important for organizations to understand where they need to invest uh, in terms of both process but technology to really give that transparency to the end consumer. But before doing that is really ensuring that they have that transparency internally with their suppliers. And to determine that unique selling proposition, it'd be good to put you on the spot here, uh, maybe share an example. How has uh, a company or a client actually gone through that decision process? And if you could give us some insight there. Sure. So if you if you look at the cotton industry, for example, and, and this is uh, 
a big area, obviously, for consumers. So fast fashion is now, you know, the most evil thing since sliced bread. That's the, that, that's the hottest soapbox in town in the fashion industry. So, so how do you prove both that the provenance of the cotton is both organic and that the people throughout the supply chain have, have commanded a fair wage, so fair trade cotton. Now, the challenge is some high street brands focus on organic cotton, which is about origination of products. Um, so you have chains like H&M that focuses on organic cotton. Other supply chain uh, focuses very much on fair trade, so treatment of of uh, of people throughout the supply chain and less about the actual provenance of products. And the challenge is, what is going to command the highest, uh, I guess, the highest price for the end, the end garment within the consumer market, such that uh, the cotton industry as a whole can then determine how they're going to focus on and where, where they should be focusing on in terms of technology? Is it more on on fair trade cotton or is it more on organic cotton? And this is a this is a really simple example in a fairly complex industry that can be replicated as a consideration across all types of industries. For example, coffee is increasingly a commodity that is, you know, one can command a much higher price for, for organic coffee or fair trade coffee. But cocoa is not quite yet there. So it's really about consumer perception as to how organisations are then designed to focus on a given product or a given commodity and investing accordingly. When an executive starts down this this path, what are the decisions they need to make? And maybe in which order are the big decisions that then make those technology and process decisions a little bit easier? Another brilliant question. What we're seeing across consumer goods companies, across uh, manufacturing companies, even oil and gas commodities is, oh, blockchain, this must be really important. Therefore, we must do a proof of concept in blockchain without actually having landed on the use case, the problem we're trying to solve. So my counsel would be to go back to basics, just like we used to do in the olden days. What, what is the business problem we're actually trying to solve and then landing on the software or the technology accordingly? And it might be if if it's people talk about, oh, we, we need to have traceability in the supply chain or sustainability in the supply chain. Traceability can be about provenance or it can be about, as I mentioned, the, the value chain and the products of the, the people and how they're treated. So that can be back to procurement or it can be simple transparency within the own internal supply chain. Or when people talk about traceability, they might even be talking about returns of packaging or return of goods. So before embarking on anything, it's really, really important to understand which aspect of the supply chain an organization is trying to solve. And only then working out, actually, do we have the right data in place before we even embark upon new technologies? Um, do we have the right processes in place? And do we need to change those things? And then looking at the technologies afterwards. That's one leg of the stool. Looks like that sustainable supply chain. I like the distinguishing uh, characteristic between organic and fair trade. That's, that, that's a good nuance. What about another area as you, as you think about, besides the product flowing, the people? Uh, you're talking about the workplace or the organization in the future. What about your employees? Can you talk about their experience and, and you mentioned talent. Yes. So so if you take a natural flow actually on from from that supply chain is 
how can you be relevant if you're focusing on how can you be more and more relevant for your end consumer regardless of whether you're a b2b or a b2c company the key is the um how you're going to structure your organization in the future so it's a lot more fluid so what we're witnessing is um using predictive analytics and organizational analytics how are organizations internally interacting uh, in a very different way than they did in the past. So as an example, uh, there would be there would be conversations maybe internally within a department and hence how a business unit got formed. If you take emphasis, we had we've always had engineering, we've always had consulting, we've always had analytics to a certain extent. Um, and recently we've heavily invested in design. Um, design and engineering consulting were three legs of the store that would have never previously come together 10 years ago. And now that's increasingly more uh, relevant and prevalent because that's what the consumer demands in terms of their end product or end service. So what's really important is the organization that's going to succeed in the future is figuring out what skills do they have today and versus what skills they have tomorrow and what that talent gap is in the middle? And equally, how is that organization set up today versus how does it need to be set up tomorrow such that it can adjust to these market demands much more frequently with the added complexity of uh, introduction of automation into that organization. And that's a very, very fascinating area that we're seeing a lot of industries are focusing on, whether that's financial services, oil and gas, or consumer goods. Can you share an example of a company that's that's gone through bringing these different areas together with that thread of automation lurking beneath the surface? Sure. So without naming a specific company, but a consumer goods company looking at how, how can we take our existing organization and increase employee productivity whilst actually minimizing um, carbon impact. So for example, how do you reorganize the, the workplace of the future so that people are able to collaborate more easily online using, for example, Microsoft uh, technologies? But also, how do you collaborate much more easily physically? And that doesn't mean we need to get rid of all individualized compartmental units and everything needs to be open plan but there's very much a drive towards how are we able to collaborate both on the cloud and physically and if you then extrapolate that a little bit further how do you reskill people so that they can fit into those those new skills and into a much more agile and flexible organization the example i wanted to give was with that backdrop in mind how then do you maximize an employee who's arriving on site, either in the normal place of work or a, a visiting campus, um, such that the moment they walk through the door, they're able to be productive? So that whole use of technology around automated uh, assignment of hot desks based upon building capacity, automated assignment of car parking spaces, um, Wi-Fi access, uh, vouchers for lunch, all of the things that just take so much time is really, really key in how you then design a workplace, both physically and digitally, and how those two worlds merge together. In the example you gave, who in the company was responsible for that? 
So that's often a driver from from two places. One is what one is HR. If it's a fairly forward thinking organisation, HR is already looking at analytics of their organisation and and how influences within the organisation, how departments are interacting in a different way than they used to before. So HR is often a buyer and a driver in that scenario, but also the business itself. So that could be within supply chains, or it could be the office of the CIO. And I guess CIOs now are so intrinsically linked and working so closely with the business that that it needs to be technology is a seamless part of the business and any CIO worth their salt and should there be an organization of CIO office of the future, they very much need to design such working environments such that they remain relevant as well. That's a whole other discussion, isn't yeah. it? Uh, the CIO as a utility manager or as the leader of the entire company. <laughs> yeah, depending on the, the approach they take. The reason I bring that up is HR typically has been in the woodwork. You know, they've been support, invisible. The only time you hear about HR is when you don't want to hear about HR. <laughs> you know, situations come up, uh, compliance issues. So can you mention maybe for that, that that HR executive or chief human resources officer what that transition is for her or for him as as they step into this workplace of the future? Do you know, I think the the role of HR is so increasingly important and relevant. Um, I think there was a Harvard Business Review publication recently, probably last year, which which talks about the role of the CHRO and how it's it's almost the, the third most important role in the organization after the CEO, CFO, and then the CHRO for exactly the reason that this talent strategy is going to be really key to the survival of the organization of the future. Um, so many organizations we talk to or I've spoken to all want to hire a thousand digital talented people. And this is a mythical beast that doesn't necessarily exist in in such large populations, certainly to work for one organization. So the answer lies somewhere between that HR, um, that CHRO and the HR department, figuring out that talent gap. And out of that talent gap, what absolutely needs to be hired in versus where can the reskilling take place? And how can that be done quickly, consistently and sustainably? And you mentioned the, the talent gap. So maybe it makes sense to transition to that. You mentioned the unicorn. Although I, I wanted to say unicorn, so I said it. Uh, you mentioned that the mythical beast people are looking for, all these hundreds and thousands of, of, of people that have these digital skills. They're deep, lots of experience and can instantly help them. You, you, you very rightly bring up that doesn't exist. Maybe you can hire them in ones or twos. Sounds like that creating this group, training, developing, although it takes some time, might be one answer. Can you talk about how companies, what you're seeing right now, what you're seeing now for companies, how they're addressing this talent gap? Take emphasis as an example in itself. So we, we have, a, of course, our um, uh, university, so the largest corporate university globally, and we've recently digitalized that. So we've made that available online. So the concept of always on learning, such that you're able to study with your peers um, across the globe, anytime, anywhere, and using gamification techniques, introducing some element of fun and collaboration such that it's not just uh, learning in isolation. And, and that's certainly having a lot of success in terms of a, a general concept. I think the other bit that's really important in the talent strategy is um, 
traditionally organizations have tried to solve a problem on their own for their consumer because they believe that that's their USP. But actually, the successful organization of the future will be ones who work out how to partner and use an ecosystem. So really getting down to in designing a target operating model of the future, what is absolutely core to our business, what is absolutely our USP versus what is non-core, and then looking for partners in a wider ecosystem of suppliers that then can complement those non-core skills, supplemented by automation using, for example, chatbots for more menial tasks. So that whole organizational redesign to figure out what's absolutely critical to your USP and your organization and focusing on reskilling that internally and hiring for that internally versus exporting and partnering is absolutely critical, which is why the CHR role is going to be front and center of any future successful organization. When you think of a company or you think of companies that have done this successfully, who are one or two that come to mind? Microsoft and Google, I think, you know, the whole fang gang of how they're really uh, looking to expand beyond their traditional boundaries. So, you know, when when there was the acquisition of Nest, like, well, why, why are they buying Nest? What You know, why does a home, home uh, thermostat, why does that play into the core business of the future? I think look, looking at, you know, Amazon and Google and how they're kind of reinventing themselves consistently and continuously is really fascinating. I think Unilever is, is also one to um, watch out for, how they're really transforming themselves in terms of talent, how they're you know, they set themselves a goal for kind of 50-50 male and female hiring. I think that I think they're almost there. I think they're 48% and 52% from memory. And it's really incredible to see as a result of that how they're able to grow and make themselves available to a much wider talent pool for the future rather than focusing on a you know only 50% of the population. So those are some of the really big players that, that you we can look to um, for ideas on, on how to reinvent and continuously drive forward. Microsoft too as well. It's interesting because Unilever is no digital startup. They've been around for a year or two or a decade or a century, right? Um, and I, I really appreciate that example because while it's one it's one thing to dismiss a Google to say, well, that's them. That's one of a small handful of these digital natives that don't really apply to the rest of us. I think Unilever is a, is a good example of something that is a company that makes a product everyone uses in every, every country, every day. And they've gone through these cycles through their, their, their management. I remember a, um, uh, a study or, or uh, also a, a case on building an insights engine that Unilever basically wrote or, or was a subject of several years ago. And so a, a example of good leadership, good management, continuing to think about what's coming. And perhaps some of those insights uh, pointed to doing what you just mentioned. That's very insightful. Yeah, I, th I think they're really, I think they're quite an inspirational company in terms of how they're trying to use the, their size to address sustainable challenges and and global population challenges and and also 
you know, diversity and inclusion in the workplace challenges. Um, and, and that's not easy. It's much easier to to buy a very locally sourced product and know exactly where it came from, that that bar of soap was made ethically. And really, they're doing everything they can in their power to to, to make their supply chain and their organization as transparent as possible. I think that I think that's very interesting to see how that will play out over the future. Yes, I remember uh, at the recent World Economic Forum in Davos, some of their executives were, were prominent, including over at the Equality Lounge, uh, speaking on what they're doing to make sure that that ratio of 50-50 is, is uh, achieved soon. And, and I think the, the implied, but, but uh, it's worth, worth bringing up as well, is the leadership gap. So people making the decisions and, and driving that um, where the investments are going, I think that also is, is broadening their perspective. And they're, they're leading the way in that area as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, such as their hashtag unstereotype, which was kicked off by Unilever, um, by Paul Pullman and also Keith Weed. And then, you know, they they brought in P&G and so forth. So that whole advertising campaign, which really changed the perspective of, of gender biased sales and marketing and advertising was one area. And then in, just in terms of, you know, some strategies they've adopted around how do you get, um, how do you get to the point of 50-50? And if, if you're, applying for a job and let's say 100 men apply for a job and only 10 women the point of interview only 10 there's only 10 male cvs and 10 female cvs that are being considered then suddenly it's a level playing field at the point um, that the interviews begin and i think that's a very very interesting strategy um that that just starts to help level out the playing field at all levels within the organization good point this this all sounds great and it sounds very doable. Can, can you share a story, though, where an example where a company really struggled with this and maybe what wall they hit and how they overcame it? Because I think people listening to this, everyone's in the middle of some kind of transformation, either as an individual or, or they're leading one in the, in the company. And when you hit a wall, you know, what, what are some lessons from the battlefield that you can share? Yeah. So, okay. So let's talk about workplace transformation as a whole. I think um, some of the challenges is monetizing the uh, the impact of, of making such an investment in in technologies to bring your employees to the cloud so that they're fully independent of physical devices and they can literally operate anytime, anywhere. Um, and, and also the physical workplace, like how would you transform your campus or your office building such that it's 100% sustainable? Um, the challenges are the business cases in, in even whilst there might be a real drive to, to make that happen and a, a desire to have the coolest place to work in, it's really saying, well, it's not just about being cool. It's about how do you measure employee productivity? How do you measure you know, your, your carbon footprints and ergo your savings accordingly in terms of, you know, how much office space you're using. But also it's about staff advocacy. So less about, uh, I think, really the, the dial of how this can really make a sizable difference is it's not about measuring uh, employee satisfaction anymore, which is largely often fairly one dimensional and around salary. It's about 
staff advocacy so very much moving from passive to active like would I recommend that you come and work for my organization based upon x y and z rather than are you happy working in your uh, workplace so I think if organizations are able to measure uh, and and continue to measure part of their business case employee productivity staff advocacy and then the whole carbon reduction impact that's a that's a huge area that shows both cost savings um, in terms of recruitment or re-recruitment or reskilling uh, because you're losing people, and also in terms of you know having the best and brightest who are then reflective of your consumer population, as we talked about at the beginning. I think those three KPIs are extremely important to make any workplace transformation a success. It's it's interesting because when you mentioned going from employee satisfaction to advocacy i had this vi- image of net promoter score for your employees right spot on so that that's a fairly simple recalibration but it might not be easy because again do human resource executives and ex- senior executives of companies really want to hear <laughs> these statistics it's like a before and after commercial uh the before ones could be wonderful when the after is done but in the beginning you can cringe at the same time you got to know where you are i think ignoring it would wouldn't help and you, it's an interesting point you bring up, making sure that the employee tests and surveys are polling for the right things, not just questions that you can analyze, but 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 things that are that are useful that you can actually build upon. Absolutely, absolutely. In addition, uh, stirring up a little bit of controversy here, you mentioned carbon footprint impact, reduction impact. There's a could be a school of thought this as well. One way to reduce carbon footprint is more automation, especially software automation, and less people. Uh, what is that balance that you're seeing with your clients? On the one hand, with with maybe carbon reduction and, and, and also the productivity, and the other, just the human talent aspect itself. What we're seeing in terms of of certainly some way to to moving the right direction in that regard is is using design thinking to look at to basically re rethink a process so for example let's take um onboarding of a new employee how can you redesign the process and look at which aspects of that process need to be more human versus less human and then the less human aspects can then be automated and and that's then prime uh you know, candidates for the for chatbots. So a tangible example, I'm jo- joining a new organization, I need to provide my uh, next of kin, national, uh, national insurance number, um, my bank details, all of those things. They're typically in any large organization or even small, you're filling out a piece of paper multiple times and maybe it might be an online form. But there's no reason why that has to be done uh, in such a manual way, that's prime candidacy for a chatbot. And that then frees up time for, for example, an HR um, officer to spend time and in actually inducting that uh, individual into the organization so that they, they can be more productive more quickly and that they feel much more at home more quickly. Um, so those are some of the aspects in, in terms of how you are able to really look at that whole employee productivity space. In terms of sustainability, it's kind of a, a two-edged sword. So you're right, for sure, chatbots, you know, you know, one chatbot by pure inference can replace three people in, in 
by the simple mathematical calculation that there's an eight hour shift and it can work 24 seven, right? So, so that's one way of looking at it. On the flip side, if you look at uh, a lot of technology that has not yet been optimized, such as blockchain, actually there's you know one school of thought that's saying because you're replicating the same data myriad times, then you are actually uh, having a larger carbon uh, footprint than you would do normally. So you know there's lots of different ways of of looking at the same uh, uh, problem through different lenses, but I think definitely uh, looking at how you can apply. A redesign of a process with the simple more human versus less human kind of calculation is definitely one way to go. Good. And I look forward to clear and clear metrics so we can all make sense of this. I think you had done some some work in this area uh, with, with the UN and World Economic Forum. Any comments uh, from your, your recent uh, presentations and work on those those councils? Yeah. So, so one very fascinating um, session I was I was presenting at the um, World Economic Forum Sustainability uh, Impact Summit in New York last year. And we were talking about um, emerging technologies and how they can solve some of these sustainability challenges. And when is the right point in time to introduce such technologies? And I was um, lucky enough to have a a co-presenter, Leanne Kemp, um, who works in the diamond industry. She works for a company. She's the CEO, actually, of uh, Everledger. And um, they are effectively a blockchain solution for the diamond industry. And what she pointed out using the diamond industry and blockchain as a brilliant example for other industries to understand was that several things came together, which has made it a success. Blockchain and uh, that type of technology is success in diamonds. Number one, the mining is predominantly concentrated in Africa. Number two, the consumer or the retail is predominantly concentrated in Amsterdam or certainly in in Europe. And number three, there was a crisis. And the crisis was the blood diamonds. There was the whole Leonardo DiCaprio film, which, you know, highlighted all of those things. And the key message in all of that was you need almost that concentration of supplier stroke manufacturer and concentration of consumer um, and a crisis for all three things to come together in order to um, demand a, a high speed reaction in terms of a solution, both in terms of process a transparency and also a technology that can be commonly used. And, and what what we talked about is that some industries are just not there yet, and that's why blockchain seems so foreign. And so therefore, there's other technologies and other solutions that could potentially solve some aspects or challenges to a supply chain, such as a simple QR code, which you can scan and understand what the last port of call was before the product arrived for you. Um, And there's also even simpler things, um, for example, in in farming, where you're just following simple process and um, quality assurance checks that perhaps aren't in place today. So it really depends upon maturity of industry, concentration of supplier and consumer, and that crisis that will really pit where you need to be in terms of you know, how far you explore down the line of, of technologies to solve these some kind of challenges. It's fascinating. And I think that it's a great example. 
that um, people can relate relate to. Speaking to a manager or a leader out there who's going through this, any any words of wisdom? Any any things to think about that uh, you would call out as your top two or three items? Yeah, I'd say um, it's very very easy and quite scary to get caught up in all the jargon and myriad technologies that are that are out there. Um, I think it's okay to say I don't know what you're talking about. I don't even understand what this technology is. And for us, really strip it back to basics to say, actually, what's the business problem we're trying to solve rather than panicking about creating several proofs of concept at, you know, 50 to $200,000 a pop just to understand how to spell a technology. So it's about not being afraid to say, I don't understand what the technology is about. It's about going back to basics around what's my business problem. And it's also about going back to basics around people and what are the what people do I need to make my business work and what can then be automated or how can I then leverage technology uh, to enhance that skill gap great words of wisdom what is your favorite uh, or most shared recommended book it can be business or personal that uh, you've been sharing or recently oh so a, a couple of really good books so i'm reading away well, i read recently a book called eastern approaches which i've recommended to many people um across across the globe um and it's uh, by sir fitzroy mclean so he was a chap in the 1930s who actually james bond was modeled on him so he works he worked for the foreign office and was stationed um all, all over but in Russia during uh, kind of 36 to 40, so um, during the whole Stalin trials. And then he he worked uh, in Africa when there was the whole turn of tide in terms of, in terms of the war. And he also worked in Yugoslavia with Tito. So hugely fascinating man. It was less about the, the outcome of the war and just really his, his drive and passion for pushing his limits. What, what I, what I love about the book is when he had his days off in Moscow, bearing in mind this is the 1930s, he'd see how far he could get into Central Asia before he either A, got kicked out or B, had to return to go to his job. And I just, I find that, you know, pushing your boundaries and just looking to explore new cultures and and new things um, is really, you know, I think it's a, a wonderful way to live life and really to keep pushing yourself to learn something new every day. So I, I love that book. I think that's brilliant. Thank you so much for your time. And before we go, how can people find you online? How can they, they see what you published and find you? You can find me on LinkedIn and most of my articles are published there. So John Cole Hackenberg, I think there's only one of them um, on LinkedIn. So um, that's the best way to reach me. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time, Jungle. Thanks so much, Jeff. I enjoyed it.